Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Andy James, who, in my opinion, is one of the most impressive guitar players on the scene. You can find him anywhere online. He's just got a massive presence. He's got a great YouTube channel where he just does a ton of playthroughs where you can hear just how good he is. Most recently, he did a tour playing for Five Finger Death Punch in Europe. So, I mean... It's not just me who thinks he's good. The guy has it going on. I'm going to get right to the episode, though. Enough for my intro. Let's get this started. Andy James, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. How's it going? All right. Pretty good. Good, good. Thanks for having me. Sounds like it's going better in Wales than here. <laughs> where, where, where's here? Atlanta. Oh, right. Okay. How is it over there? Is it, you know, really bad or moderately bad or... It's like in a semi-state of anarchy. It goes back and forth between a semi-state of anarchy and like coronavirus madness. So right. I'm kind of out in the suburbs, so life is peaceful here. But yeah, Atlanta is, uh, there's some parts of it that are very Mad Max right now. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Brown, where are you? I'm in a, I'm in a little town called Haworth. It's where the Bronte sisters are from, if you're familiar with the books. You know, uh, um, Wuthering no. Heights. I'd have to Wuthering learn. Heights. I, I need to learn how to read. <laughs> <laughs> and, then I'll, and then I'll be on I'll be on that wavelength. There's only been one case of it, though. One case in my town. Right, okay. Does everyone know who that case is? Because <laughs> you know, imagine being that person, like... <laughs> well, well, I don't, because I, I came here so that I didn't have to see any humans. Because of how small the town is, I'm pretty sure that everyone knew who it was, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, got you. Did they get thrown down a well? Uh, this like, isn't a land, like, mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what, what happened? Uh, I have no idea. As I say, I don't talk to anyone in this mm. area. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, I talked to my neighbor. That was probably about it. But he's just moved out two days ago. So I don't have any neighbors now, which is perfect. So you're exactly all lonely. How it should be. mind-blowing. <laughs> one of you guys has only been around five confirmed cases, and like one of you has been around one. There's yeah. like 30,000 around me. Yeah, but now they've just opened up America and it's like, you know, it never happened. <laughs> we all need a canary in the coal mine, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, yeah. Basically, I mean, 
how else you're going to know how bad this thing really is? Because you can't trust anything that's put out on the news because it keeps flip-flopping and changing and everyone's made it a political thing. So yeah, yeah. best thing you can do is open it up and then just see what the fuck happens. But uh, <laughs> I'm staying home while that happens. <laughs> yeah, I must admit I've been trying to stay out of it. Yeah, you can't take anything seriously, in my opinion, that you see in mass media, uh, which is unfortunate because it didn't really used to be that way, I think. Or at least it didn't seem that way when I was growing up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I said, I'm letting everybody else be the be the uh, beta testers on this. <laughs> and uh, and we'll see what happens. If you guys want to fall down a rabbit hole, search, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, search the Greek term uh, eisegesis. I've been reading into this quite a lot about the, uh, the way that people take sort certain... Uh, paragraphs or sentences of things that people have said and put it into a different context for their it's own a agenda. Up thing to do. Yeah. The Greeks, uh, the ancient Greeks knew about it. They used to call it eisegesis, which is spelled E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. And it's quite an interesting concept. Right. Yeah. Fall down the rabbit hole, <laughs> write some music like I did. <laughs> the idea of taking something somebody said and weaponizing it against them is uh, super devious. <laughs> so what are you up to, Andy? How's how's uh, lockdown for you? Well, actually, I mean, probably a lot of musicians can attest to this, but my life hasn't really changed a huge amount because I don't really go out and see people. I'm normally um, either watching some sort of TV series or in my studio working on music if I'm not out like touring or doing stuff. And then occasionally go out and, you know, meet friends and stuff like that, which is the only real change. I mean, I was really gutted when they shut Starbucks. So that was a a, a, a major downer on my day. But then that, they, was, that was the last straw. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I was like, fuck. It was the same as me, for sure. Definitely. That's the only way I get out of this room. Yeah. Is to drive. Because the nearest Starbucks to me is 37 minutes away. What, drive? Car. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that would be like my sort of like right, I've sat in this room for three straight days. I need to get out of it. Yeah. And that would be like- Oh, my... you must love that coffee. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's absolute garbage. It is really, really bad. I mean, I'm just saying, I can think of other ways to spend an hour and 15 minutes to clear your mind that- Oh yeah, I go for a walk as well because I live in the middle of nowhere. But you, cho but you choose that Starbucks and that says something. No, no, no. I choose Starbucks as like one of the options. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, which I'm guessing is what Andy does as well. I mean, he lives in the middle of Wales. He's probably got loads of nice views where he can go for walks and stuff, but doesn't quite cut it the same as Starbucks. I do, but I don't. <laughs> I mean, I, should, I went for one walk the other day and then it just reminded me of why I never do it. <laughs> which is which is why? <laughs> well, because it just makes you knackered, doesn't it? You get out of breath <laughs> and it's, it's hard work. I mean, I, you know, if I'm going to put that much effort into moving around, I'd rather be doing a show for an hour and a half, you know, at least you kind of... Newsflash, dude, that's not happening till 2021. No, so, yeah, uh... yeah. Well, I don't know, in America, that might be different the way they're carrying on at the minute. It might just be like next month. They'll be like, yeah, fuck it. <laughs> or never again if we don't have a country in a few months. Well, yeah. It descends into anarchist autonomous states yeah everywhere i don't know i mean I, in the meantime i'm just trying to sort of keep myself busy so i've, I've done a, a whole album at the moment which i didn't really plan on doing because i was supposed to be on tour at the moment but um because i'm not i'm just sat around 
doing fuck all. So I sort of sat down and thought, right, I've got a bunch of ideas that start on my phone. I'll just plug into an amp, get some riffs together. And then if I'm sat in front of my computer thinking, what am I going to do? I normally just go through my, my phone and see if there's anything that I feel that's worth engaging in. And then that's it, really. And I've just sort of like 10 songs in. I'm just pissing around with trying to get it to sound all right at the moment, which is always the worst part of it. <laughs> I spend hours just sifting through the best ideas I can find for the song, you know, because I try and everything I work on, I try and get it to, to where it can only be that and it can't be anything else. So like that whole thing where on a lot of modern metal records, you could take a riff from like the eighth song on the record and copy paste it to the second song and no one would even know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that, yeah. but yeah, like normally, well, basically avoiding that. Yeah, I mean, normally I don't, I, I don't like have any eyes looking at me when I'm doing something. You know what I mean? So it's quite daunting when that happens, isn't it? I suppose if you set a kind of certain bar for yourself, you can't really avoid that. When I suppose maybe your reputation precedes you a little bit, and then you've got to sit there and do it in real time. I mean, not that it's <laughs> impossible, because like when you play live, you have to do that anyway. But a studio environment is always a little bit different. Well, the thing is live, you shouldn't make mistakes live, but the thing is there's a lot you can get away with just because people can't hear that well. You're not exactly under the same microscope live. So yeah, if you hit a wrong note or something, <laughs> hit the wrong chord, that's going to that's gonna definitely be noticed. But something as simple as your pick is at a slightly, at just at the slightly wrong angle and it squeaked a little... No one's going to notice that shit live, no. but uh, in the studio, yeah, you better believe it. They might start soon with all the uh, the live streaming that we're doing. You're going to have to start playing as tight. The pre-recorded live streaming, you mean? <laughs> 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 I actually watched the live stream last night. It was Papa Roach. Oh yeah, fuck, I missed that. I was going to watch it. Yeah, it was Infest album played start to finish, and it's actually pretty damn good. And I'm pretty certain that it wasn't recorded. They're a great band live as well. They've got such a really good energy, you know what I mean? So yeah, I think that now you can't even get away with making mistakes live. <laughs> yeah, I don't think all of those bands are going to be doing pre-recorded. I think if they play a style where it kind of has to be, it's kind of understandable if it's like super prog where it has like more elements than you have band members for or or they can't possibly get together. That's that's the thing. If they can't possibly be in the same room, there's no way to really do it live with streaming. It's too much latency and room for error. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I mean, even when we started this podcast, we all had to clap at the same time. It didn't happen exactly at the same time. So you imagine, <laughs> unless, unless there's like a universal click that's being sent to everyone, I don't know. There's actually a program, I can't remember the name of it, but Blue Oyster Cult have been using it to live stream and apparently it cuts out all the latency of internet. Wow. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called. I'll try and find it. I mean, that doesn't help the people listening, but it helps me. <laughs> <laughs> my, so my question is, first of all, if it really does that, so uh, I don't want to talk shit. I'm not talking shit, okay? He's I'm talking just going to make a statement. <laughs> Those guys are old. They're an awesome old band, but they're not like, they don't need to be Meshuggah or something like that. It's yeah, or monuments or something, you know, or monuments. It has to be super yeah. tight. Exactly. Like that, that kind of music is a lot more feel based. So I feel like if there's a couple milliseconds latency between the click, it's not going to fuck it up the way that it will fuck you up, Brown, <laughs> um, where you feel milliseconds of latency in different modelers and it completely fucks up your playing. 
that's number one. I wonder if it truly gets rid of the latency. And if it does, that's some, that's some super tech. And then how expensive is that? That's the other thing. It could be fucking expensive. I, I need to find it again. I'll find it. And I'll give you guys the rundown on it. Actually, talking about playing live and stuff like that, Brown, uh, Monuments fans, do they notice if you like, you know, fuck up a riff? Because I should imagine with a band like that, the following are probably pretty intently listening to the intricacies of the music. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, Well, I unfortunately have this uh, defense mechanism built into my psyche where when I fuck up, I let everyone else know that I have fucked up. What, in a, in a jokey way or? You stop the song and say, <laughs> I fucked up? No, no, no. It's in like, I'll pull a face or I'll do like a jerk, you know, like a, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Just smash your guitar on the ground and yeah. walk off stage and don't come back. Or just turn around or do something, you know, I do something um, to let everyone know that I fucked up. I need to stop it actually, because ultimately it doesn't really matter, but it ruins the gig for me. It's one of those things, you know, like you fuck up one little thing and then the whole, the whole gigs are right off. You know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. Yeah. That, that happens to me as well. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, that kind of, that did happen to me a couple of times on the, uh, on the European death punch thing. <laughs> I was in, um, oh yeah. In the studio with Matt butcher babies, whole thing. And then Obviously, you know, with Zoltan being there, I got to know him a little bit um, through that. And then I think they were having, I, th I think Jason Hook was having some health issues anyway on tour. And I think it got to a point where it was like, look, it was either, you know, we need to get someone else to come in and finish the tour or whatever. And I suppose that studio session in a roundabout way ended up being some kind of audition for me because, I mean, I must have left an impression on him to the point where, yeah, he, he can clearly play, you know, it's not all studio trickery and, you know, editing and all the rest of it. Maybe if he can remember some songs, it might be a way to, you know, get someone to come in and, and, and fill in and, and help out sort of thing. And then, and then also they got to hang out with you in person and realize that pleasant to be around. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's the British sense of humor, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is. You guys have an advantage over us because people automatically think you're cool with that accent. Like, they think you're smarter and they think you're cool. Like, <laughs> See, I never understand that because yeah. I think I just sound thick as fuck. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, Americans, by and large, believe that English people or Welsh people too. He's not Welsh. Anyone with, that, <laughs> with an accent from that region are just smarter than them and cool. Right. Just because. I don't think many Americans have heard like a Newcastle accent or a Liverpool accent. No, I accent. don't think so either. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't think they would think that if they heard that. Well, actually, yeah, Liverpool you should have heard because of the Beatles, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, so it's something else, definitely. Man, can I say, I think Zoltan, I, I'm not like friends with him or anything. I met him once. And we talked for like an hour straight. It was just like a chance meeting. We just kind of like hit it off in that moment. It was a great conversation. And I have to say that guy blew me away. Like he's one of the most intelligent people I have met in yep. the entire music game. And I don't normally meet people like I know a lot of intelligent people, but I never, not never, but I rarely meet people who have that high level of an entrepreneurial brain. Like he seriously impressed me. It is. It's, it's very intimidating. 
I mean, you know, like, I mean, he's he's awesome to hang around with, you know, good sense of humor, easy to be around. But yeah, like when he turns it on. Oh, yeah, it moves fast. Yeah, you're like, fucking hell, you know, how can one person know this much about everything? It's kind of, it's insane, really. But I mean, it, you do get a sense that like Death Punch's success and where they are, it's not by accident. There's no way. Metal elitists don't understand the first thing about that band there's nothing that's by accident in that hour i learned a lot about the band yeah we talked a lot about their success and about success and you know manifesting things in the real world and it was pretty deep but i came to the conclusion that there is zero percent accident or luck involved with five finger yeah like 100%. everything is totally deliberate and calculated. Which, when you think about it, I was like, right, you want you want me to come and do this? Are you sure about this? Like, you know, because it, <laughs> it, it, it was definitely a, a, you know, he must have trusted me immensely with like learning all yeah. of their set in like two two days. To then, you know, literally be wheeled out in front of that many people, which I'd never done, you know, especially on in ears. You know, the whole other thing that people don't see, which is all the the, the running of how they set up their tracks and stuff, because there was a couple of shows where they have like pre count where you get pre-count before hi-hat count, and I was taking it as that was the count. So there was a couple of times where I'd be starting the song before everyone else. In fact, the first time, the first show, I remember coming out, and because they had the, this like big curtain up, and um, it was like, you know, one, two, three, four, and then I started the riff for Lift Me Up, but then Charlie started counting it in. I'm like, fuck, I've literally just started this song early in front of everybody else, and Ivan shot me a look that I was like, fuck, I'm fired, I'm done already. This is over. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it was fine. You know, I kind of got past the first show, any of those sort of like teething problems and stuff like that. And like halfway through that, managed to start enjoying it. Wait, wait, so hold, hold on. You, you, so you fucked up. The very first, first thing in the very first show <laughs> yeah. on a Death Punch tour. Yeah. God, you must have wanted to shrink to the size of an ant and just disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lost about two stone in water weight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that must have been awful. God damn. Like, that was what? It must have been, what, like 10, 15,000? Nightmare come true. It's fight or flight. And, you know, they had realized within the chaos of, like, getting me in and doing all the things and this sort of, like, last-minute rehearsals and stuff that, you know, like Zoltan especially was like, look, man, he said, we didn't even go over that. So, like, we didn't even, I didn't even know that was that was the thing. Because when we rehearsed, it was in a, it was in a room, you know, just with uh, the rest of the band. It wasn't, it wasn't on stage. I mean, we did like a sound check and stuff like that, but we didn't go through any of that stuff really. I mean, it was so like quick and, and high pressure. It was like just enough to sort of like do that. But I, I realized after that moment that maybe I should take the initiative to make eye contact with Charlie and then he could visually cue me. So after that happened, it didn't happen again. But again, it's like fight or flight. You know, you either kind of, you get destroyed by the pressure or you just find a way to adapt and make it look seamless so nobody in the audience is really knows what's going on and they get the show that they paid to come and see, you know. You could make the mistake and, like, make a huge noise about it and, like, make it a dramatic fuck-up that everybody notices or you can just figure out a way to play it off and keep going. And Well, that's the thing I learned, you know, because I obviously... I mean, which is why I brought up the, the subject to Brown about, you know, the, the type of fan base that you have, you know, when you carve that kind of niche for yourself as being a precision player. You know, my stuff usually with the, with the solo thing, obviously it's, it's kind of going down that same route of, you know, touting yourself as somebody that 
kind of prides himself on the precision of being able to play that stuff. You know what I mean? So in that you, you draw a different audience, I suppose you, you draw an audience of like guitar players that are dedicated to, to seeing that stuff, understanding what they're listening to and all the rest of it. You know what I mean? So like my mindset is very much the same as Brown's in terms of like, if I do a gig and I'll fuck up one note, you know, and I'll know it won't just be me that noticed that will kind of ruin the whole show for me, you know, and you, and you have to get through it. I think the audience doesn't, penalize you unless you really suck because i have a few examples like uh Erner opeth put out a dvd and i know that they're a little more like vibey but like they've got the prog audience and you know they're a musician's band in that dvd uh on one of the songs michael is like hitting an octave like maybe near the 12th fret and then sliding back down it's one of those opeth octave riffs and he hits it a half step off and it's, it's sour. Yeah. And he, he like laughs and they kept in the shot of him fucking it up. They didn't even go to a different angle. Like obviously that was a deliberate move to keep that in. And I, I thought it was really cool. Actually, the reason I thought it was really cool is because it tells me that these guys are for real. And then I remember seeing a playthrough video with the leprous drummer. I think he's one of the best. Ah, uh, yes. That one's really good. That guy is a phenomenal drummer. And a lot of times people don't believe that these drummers can actually play. So in this playthrough where he's doing insane shit, insane, he drops a stick and recovers, but he kept that in. And even though I think a lot of people would have been like, fuck, I dropped a stick, got to start over. The fact that he kept it in lets you know that he was actually playing that stuff. And so it makes it that much more impressive. That props up my point I was I was just going to make. But, you know, like when you, you come from that background and then you go into something like, you know, performing with a band like Death Punch, it's funny like how your mindset has to shift from the precision side of it to, you know, the overall like performance and experience that the, you know, the band is known for giving, especially on stage. And it's like there is a realness to it and an honesty to it as well. You know what I mean? And like... I mean, I, I remember like Ivan said to me, he said, look, I know you, you know, you really care a lot about getting this stuff like note perfect and getting it like absolutely bang on. He said, but you know, this is a different type of, did he say bang on? No, but <laughs> I'm kind just, of paraphrasing in my, in my British tone. <laughs> okay. Just, just curious if he said bang on, cause I just couldn't imagine that. <laughs> no, no, but no, they, they, you know, but that's the thing they would like totally cool about it. Cause they know I respect the music, the performance and all the rest of it enough to kind of be that stressed out about getting it wrong. Also, it's just to kind of like learn to have fun, be able to like do what I do in, in, in the parameters of like how they operate as a band. And I think, you know, with, with that, you realize that, you know, most people that go and watch bands like that, they go because they want to have a good time. They want to enjoy themselves. They're not maybe hyper-focusing on the every little detail that you're doing. That's not to say that you've got to get up there and play a completely different song than the one you're supposed to be. Cause I think people would notice well, yeah. <laughs> but it's a very different mindset and it took me a good few shows to get out of that, you know, standing there kind of like trying to get everything right and actually, you know, starting to perform. It's funny, I remember someone put a comment on YouTube going, oh, well, you know, he's going to have to work on his stage presence pretty fucking fast. Like, and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, consider what I normally do. It ain't as if I could run around like fucking, you know, Slash or something, like playing, I don't know, 200 BPM like sex tuplet shred runs you know it's just not going to happen certainly not from a precision point of view anyway so yeah when you're doing a rock show it's a totally different thing you know you have to kind of perform and, and do all that so 
so what what are the kinds of things that you had to I guess adopt mentally like how did you actually shift your mindset and what is different well I mean it's funny because like I kind of came to realize that playing stages like that you realize that if you feel comfortable I don't think anyone is witnessing a performance like I think you have to if you're if you're making all of your movements bigger and bolder on stage and you feel uncomfortable then I think that says to you on an individual level that you're putting uh, you're you're making a show out of it if that makes any sense. It, it does. It's kind of like when you're making a video, it's kind of said that on video, if you feel normal, then you're not putting in enough energy. You need to put in enough energy to where you feel a little embarrassed about it. And then that'll just look like you normal, putting in normal amount of energy to people viewing. Yeah. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, you have to make yourself to the point where you feel uncomfortable and enjoy it simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the things that I learned. I also learned that in-ears are really weird. Um, I think given the choice, I probably wouldn't do it. But Ivan's the only one that doesn't use in-ears, and I'm surprised he's not deaf by now because those side fills are murderously loud. Ivan doesn't use in-ears? No, he's the only one that doesn't. Quite interesting. He has the like, side fills. Yeah, it's just so he can, you know, do what he does and feel the energy. And, you know, because, I mean, if you've seen the band live, I mean, it's like he's like a sort of an animal just been let out the cage. You know what I mean? It's And it's impressive to watch. And the the, the command he has over the, the crowd as well. I mean, I, I've seen Death Punch a few times, uh, once at Download and another time, I can't remember now. But it's, it's definitely, it's a different thing to sort of like watch it from the audience perspective. And then it's another thing entirely to kind of witness it happen on stage. And it's mad because it really does fill you with, with an energy that maybe you didn't think you had. You know what I mean? It's quite infectious when you, when you work with someone like that. And, and then again, you know, it attests to the success of the band, you know, especially how professional he is as well you know i mean i you know i know they've had their issues and stuff like that but you know to be able to turn it on like that and deliver that kind of performance it's not a normal thing and it's not it's it's very rare i think oh yeah that's a very tiny amount of people who have the charisma to be able to pull that off also i don't think that's something you can i mean you can develop it a little but to be on the level where you can command to that degree i think you're bo you're born with that yeah 100 percent. so what you had to cover a lot more ground on stage too like the size of the stage did that throw you off at all well no i mean i've, I've played um you know fairly sort of big i mean maybe not that big i mean i've done like download main stage once before and i've done a few shows with like fills of the nephilim and stuff so like i've done you know bigger shows in front of bigger audiences but maybe not as maybe not as energetic um, or have to be, but that's the other thing, you know, as well as, as well as playing the songs, how they're meant to go, as well as kind of getting the count ins right, as well as doing the performance, you've got to then have like your peripheral vision. That's the other thing as well. I had to tune that in massively because like, obviously when you're looking at a stage like that, it's weird when you've got like three people on one side of the stage and then one person, on the other side, and obviously other people in the band move. So it's a constant chess game of like trying to keep the stage looking even, but like everybody's swapping and doing their thing. And you have to keep your peripheral vision going because if someone's coming and they're literally coming to stand where you're standing, it's going to be weird if you don't like occupy some other space and keep like the, the symmetry of the stage going, you know what I mean? But then you also have to decide whether you move out of someone's way or you stay and perform with them. So you kind of have like a, 
you know, so like, I don't know, I might come over, for example, and he'll be looking over my shoulder or, or, or whatever. And, you know, do you choose to perform in that moment or do you just see that he's coming, get the fuck out of the way, you know? So you have to make these, like, on-the-spot decisions the whole time and it's an hour and a half's worth of constant, where am I, what, I do, what am I doing, am I in the right space, is this happening, is this going... You know what I mean? It's like there's so much involved in doing a show like that that I don't think people realise. Was there any pyro on stage, actually? Yeah. As- <laughs> well, I mean, it's lucky because there's a couple of times I nearly singed my fucking eyebrows. But they have, they have like, uh, they got the pyro set up either side of the stage. I mean, it's Charlie I feel sorry for. It's ridiculous, especially like burn, motherfucker, burn. They literally burn the tanks out, like, at the end of that on the breakdown. And it's just insanely hot. Even if you're at the front of the stage, you can probably get a back tan or something. But anyway, they've got like tape around the uh, the things, but there's also a guy that operates it manually. So he's constantly looking to see if anybody's going to, you know, at some point go near the pyro when they, when they shouldn't. And that's the other thing as well. It's like remembering parts of the songs, you know, where they have like, there'll be a breakdown for like a riff or there'll be like a chorus or so. Say like uh, Jekyll and Hyde, for example, like the chorus for that, the whole stage just like lights up. So you're better off being at the front of the stage than you are right next to the pyro when that happens. Because <laughs> the thing is, obviously, it's part of the show, but the guy's not going to let the pyro go if anyone's near it. So it's going to destroy part of that show if like someone's wandered too near the pyro because then they can't let off that bit and it will make the, the impact less, you know what I mean? So you have to make sure you're not anywhere near it, any, any of this kind of stuff so it, it doesn't impact on the show or burn one of the members alive. Did you see the show where James Hetfield got uh, roasted? By Pyro? I can't remember it in any vivid detail, but I know I've seen a clip of him getting burnt, yeah, on one of them shows. Fucking brutal. Yeah, Singer of Gajira got burnt, didn't he? Did he? Yeah, and there was another video as well where the Pyro burnt someone, but he just continued. Was it? Yes. Paul Stanley? Yes, and he just continues. Yeah, and the guy came on and was just patting his hair down, like, while he's still... Yeah. And then there's uh, there's also V-Man as well, Slipknot, that actually has Pyro on his base. Right. When he's walking around the stage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's it's a whole nother level of gigging and and touring which up to now i'd never i'd never experienced before but i mean it's cool you know you it's always a new thing until you learn about it and then it's not a new thing anymore and it's just like everything else that you do but you have to do it in order to learn how this stuff works do you think it's a lot harder and i don't mean this in a way to like talk down on smaller bands at all like because i think there's lots of awesome bands that don't play arenas and stuff. Yeah, of course. Do you think from the, from the perspective of the person on stage, now that you've done exactly the kind of tour that you're talking to Brown about, uh, now you've done this, what do you think is more challenging? Uh, I don't know. It's an interesting question really, because like every gig scenario has its own challenges. Like, I mean, playing at Nam, for example, on like the boss stage with loads of people like swamping the stage with all the other background noise going on has its own challenge. It's not an arena show, yes. but it's, you know, that I, I always say that if you can perform in an environment like that, you can perform anywhere because there's so many distractions that happen, you know, for, for you to easily lose your train of thought when doing stuff. It does take a certain focus. And also having like your favorite guitar player probably looking at you over his shoulder, you know, that's another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's happened. Like I've, had, I've been, I've been sort of like, you know, shredding and I've had like Michelangelo, Batio, like walk past and just stand there looking at you and you, and, and you're just like, fucking hell, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the you know things like that happen as well. You just have to kind of like put it out of your mind and and carry on as as, as normal. So yeah, I mean like club shows. I think the biggest problems I'd, I'd ever have at like club shows are two things really. One, gear breaking down. Uh, and having no tech because the you know I, I to be honest I'd, I've never had a tech up until this point I've always done my own thing so if anything goes wrong you sort of fucked or someone throwing their alcohol over your pedal board or something like that and then that fries your gear and it makes it difficult to like carry on so you know when you're in an environment where you're it's hot sweaty you're in close proximity to other people that brings a whole new set of you know problems that maybe you don't have in arena shows where you're not near anybody the things that can happen on stage. I mean, gear problems can happen, but at least someone else is there to sort it out. You know, those bigger shows are, are all the things that I mentioned, you know, staying away from the pyro, getting out of people's way, making sure that you're kind of overperforming in, in, in to, to be able to just look normal. You know, those things maybe don't apply as much on smaller gigs where like the, the band members aren't moving around as much as say like the vocalists. Because I know that, um, you know, like playing smaller shows, especially like the Underworld or something like that in London, you know, the singer's really the only person that, you give any kind of like movement to everybody else is sort of like doing their thing in the position. I mean, I don't know if you, if you guys have, have played in there, but it's a very awkward venue. Yeah, exactly. So it's god awful. You know what I'm talking <laughs> about? It's a corner venue. There's like pillars in there. When it gets busy, it's like ridiculous, you know, and you can't really move around. Plus the fact you can't even set your back back line up straight because you've got like the the railings and the, the railing wall. is yeah. sort of like diagonal, and then you have to sort of angle your cab weird. So it's yeah. It's less than ideal, but I've had some great shows in there, nonetheless. I've actually never had a good show in the underworld. Oh, really? Never? (laughs) No, and the main reason is is at the time we were still on wedges. And that would be my main challenge for club shows is that the the monitor guy, 99% of the time, just never got it right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so you never had a dedicated person in there doing your stuff? Yeah, there was. Yeah. Obviously, if it was busy, there would be a monitor guy. But yeah, it just was never right. Like, And obviously, when people go into the venue, it changes the sound of your monitor mix. Yeah. And if it was an analog console, it wasn't the same as sound check. So there was probably no point in sound checking. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, I think it is analog in there still, is it? I don't know. It might be. Yeah, I can't remember now. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if it's still analog. But yeah, that was like, I'd say that's probably, you know, some of the main concerns with club shows. I mean, at least when you're on stage with, you know, by finger, like you've got your dedicated monitor guy constantly making sure your in-ears are good. Good tech as well. Like, yeah. I mean, how many times have you like snapped a string live on a club show? I mean, that's like, I can imagine for you is quite stressful mid-solo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's happened. I have to be honest though, That that's probably one of the, the least, things that I worry about the most because I, I normally change my strings like before every show so you know, with with Death Punch it was like once every other show but then again you know you, you have more than one guitar usually I don't have more than one guitar but the, the biggest problem that I, I used to have was like my strap coming off because I'd put like the the cable like through the strap obviously so I don't stand on it and pull it out the jack thing um, which is embarrassing. You go for a solo, you step on your fucking jack and that's it. Nothing, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's horrible when that happens. Or like, I used to play like Les Paul style guitars and you'd have the volume down on one of them and you'd flick to the neck pickup and it's turned down. You're like, fuck. It just gets rid of the impact. But no, um, yeah, like the, because I, I didn't use strap lock stupidly. So like the, the cable through the bottom of the, the strap would sometimes knock it off of the strap lock or the holder. So then I'd end up just with holding the, the guitar in my left hand and not being able to play it, you know what I mean? So that's happened a few times. 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, you just never know what's going to happen. You know, you, you always have to be vigilant and just be prepared for the worst. And then hopefully you'll do a show and nothing will go wrong, you know. So what's your process for learning uh, somebody else's songs to the degree where they're happy? Well, I mean, I, I suppose the the one thing that did, well, two things that helped me, like the Death Punch thing, I, I knew the songs anyway, not to play on guitar, but I knew how they went. So half the battle was knowing the arrangements and stuff and assuming that they didn't change them too much on a from a live point of view. Because there is a couple of songs where they chop a few bits out, but again, they're not like massive changes that you struggle to remember. So that would that would have been, an, an, you know, part of the struggle. But essentially, I suppose, because I'd done Lick Library for so long, I guess in a way that was like a, a guitar impressionist job, you know, s- sitting there trying to break down other people's styles and, you know, listen to the inherent, like, things that make those players sound the way they do and try and hone in on that and then obviously learn the, the, le- learn the notes as well. But, you know, you know as well as I do, like, you can't just learn the notes of a song. You have to, you have to put the, the intent in behind it to get it to sound anywhere close to what the, the artist was initially intending, you know what I mean? And how it sounds like to everybody else. What are some of those things, if you can point them out, like in Five Finger Death Punch riffs that you had to add to the notes to make it sound authentically that? I mean, Zoltan's got a very like specific style. Like he's got a killer right hand. I don't know if you've ever like actually seen him like play, but some of their riffs and stuff are actually like fucking hell. You know, you'd, you'd need a really good like wrist technique to be able to pull that stuff off. So there is that. Uh, and then trying to find an efficient way of being able to do that so you don't get tired on, on some of those riffs. It's, it's quite, I don't know, ligament consuming <laughs> energy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But as far as like, you know, Jason's got a very cool start. I mean, I've been a fan like for you know 10 years or whatever. Um, so, and I really like his style. It's a good mixture of say like kind of Paul Gilbert, Van Halen and a bit of Zach Wilde sort of like thrown in, you know what I mean? So there, there's a lot of that in there. So it's just trying to be mindful of that really the expression in like some of the, the note bends and stuff. And, and he's a very precise picker as well. You know what I mean? So you can't go into that gig and only pick half of the stuff that he does because the intent will be lost. So you have to find ways of being able to sort of like do that. I did have to refinger a few different things because he does a lot of uh, sex tuplet repeating licks where it kind of trips me up as a player because I don't start on a downstroke. I start on an upstroke with a lot of my picking. So doing that whole, you know, it's, it's harder for me because my pick gets stuck. So I have to figure out ways of being able to do that. So typically I would take something like that and turn it into a five note lick but play one of the notes twice. And if you do it fast enough, you'll never notice. But it's just finding little workarounds like that where you could do it. I did have to play some of that stuff a little bit differently because I didn't have a huge amount of time to to get it as banging as maybe as, as it should be. And even he takes a little bit of artistic license with some of the stuff that he's written himself. So it's not like everything has to be played bang onto the record. You know what I'm saying? So it's just a lot of different things like that, really. Vibrato, intent, being able to pick. And just trying to be as sort of precise as possible, really, while doing all the other stuff. What did you do for your right hand in order to... You, you talked about their material being, I guess, uh, hard on the endurance um, to keep that up for that long. First of all, is it a lot of down picking? And second of all, what did you do to, to make it easier for yourself, stamina-wise? A lot of it's alternate picks, just simply for the speed. It would be impossible to try and... I mean, even for someone like, I don't know, Brown or James Hetfield or whatever to like, you know, down pick, you know, people that I would consider 
incredibly efficient down pickers. Are you downplaying my skills? No, so. no, I'm picking it up, mate. I'm picking it up. I'm saying you probably could if you know if you had to nah. sort of sit there and do it. But like, it gets to a certain point for me where it feels a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, my down picking. I think the the limit of my down picking, and even then, it's pretty hard. Is probably like waking the demon by bullet for my Valentine. Like that's actually a a really hard riff to play all down picked. I don't know if you've ever tried doing that, but that's like I haven't tried it, but it's given me a challenge for later today. Yeah, one of those because when I did that DVD for Lick Library, I was just like fucking hell. And I've since had it confirmed that it is all down picked. It's not alternate picked. And I think for the video, I actually gave in and alternate picked it in the end. I normally approach that kind of riffing style like I do with like alternate picking within solos because the technique isn't a huge difference. But like, it's it's really because when you tense up, it's actually counterproductive uh, in trying to get efficiency in in being able to do it for longer. Because like when you tense up, you're using more muscle energy, and in that, it just like fatigues quicker. So I always try and tell people to like relax when they're doing anything like that, or at least try and recognize where they're tensing up, and just see if they can, you know, keep the pick as close to the string as possible and relax the muscle at the same time. And I think. One thing that I have noticed with doing stuff like that is you, when you relax, you get this almost like twitch muscle motion that happens. Yeah. That if you yeah. tense a little bit, you can get you can get the speed, but it's it's controlling that tension to where it doesn't like destroy your um, your stamina within your within your wrist. And it's funny, you know, because like you know, there's this whole adage that people use when they teach like playing fast. It's like, well, you know, you have to learn everything slow and then gradually speed it up. And it's kind of weird for me because I've always recognized that the difference between playing stuff slow and playing stuff fast is that twitch muscle motion. But you know what I'm saying though? Like when you do that, there is this motion that comes into play that I don't actually think you can practice at a slow tempo. It's only something that happens when you're getting near to the desired speed of something. And I've yet to be able to figure out how to teach that to somebody. But there is an inherent difference, even if it's minor, playing stuff slow and playing stuff fast. So there is a certain amount of tension involved, but it's a tension that you can quite happily deal with and control, yeah. Yeah, it's controlled, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, actually. There's a threshold point, like a BPM, where you can, like, if you go underneath that BPM, it's not there. But if you go past it, then you fatigue yourself. There's like that perfect moment. And I think it actually happens when you're comfortable. I actually think that's what it is. I think that, I know exactly what you're talking about, though. Yeah, it's hard to explain what that is. It is, yeah. And somehow you have to feed that into your subconscious. So like obviously when you're when you're performing and doing it on stage, you're not thinking about that very thing. You know, it's it's embedded into the muscle memory. But yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge to try and explain that to people that haven't already I mean, you know, it's like the matrix, isn't it? You have to see it for yourself to know what it is. <laughs> you can't yes. be told what the twitch motion is, you have to discover it for yourself. But once you once you understand it and, and you you do it enough, I think that's something that I, I relied on when doing some of the riff stuff anyway, was to just remember that I don't have to like tense in order to get that to work. Do you think though that that ability to control the tension comes only once you're able to play? accurately and fast yeah i mean i suppose what you're saying what you mean like getting the left hand notes and getting the getting the pick strokes right and all of that as well i mean i suppose it it simultaneously all seems to come together to serve whatever goal it is because i never work on the fingering with my left hand and then add in the right hand afterwards and then and then do it like as a gradual thing i'll just sort of like throw myself in at the deep end play it horrendously bad and then just start cleaning it up as time goes on I guess that's been my approach to guitar playing 
over the last sort of 30 years or whatever is just basically um, throw myself in at the deep end, play it like shit for a good amount of time and then clean it up. So you don't do slow to fast? No, not really. It's never been a thing for me because I suppose maybe I just couldn't get the essence of what the target was if I'd played it like really slow. Because that's the other thing. When you teach stuff really slow, you lose like the rhythm of what it is. Because when you get stuff up to a certain speed, like say, for example, I don't know, a Paul Gilbert lick or something, there's always like a definite groove and a definite accent point within within that. And I always feel like if you learn stuff like that really slow, it's hard to keep track of where that pulse is. So I would learn stuff like that and just play it incredibly scruffily until I'd started to weed out what it is that was making it scruffy, but always keeping the intent of the original idea. In turn, actually, I think it was like faster for me to like grasp stuff than it was to learn everything like super slow and then gradually speed it up. I know that's kind of counterproductive. I think that probably helps people that are trying to learn the notes and just trying to get their coordination up. But I think if your coordination's fairly good anyway, you could probably afford yourself to, you know, jump in at the deep end and then just clean it up afterwards. So the the slow to fast thing is the conventional wisdom. And I think it does work for a lot of people, but you're not the only person I've met who doesn't do that. I've met a couple other guitar players that are really, really good who will jump in at the speed and then just, they'll just fix it little by little, almost like, it's almost like carving something out basically. I think that maybe that's down to uh, the fact that you tried the slow to fast thing and you understood it. And then you, it didn't work for you. So you found another way to make it work for you, but you already tried other ways of learning it. I mean, it could just be a simple thing of being impatient. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, too. I, I know I yeah. am incredibly like, you know, and I would get frustrated and angry and fucking, you know, shout and F and Jeff and all that. My process in guitar playing has never been methodical. Like I've never really sat down with a metronome and assigned 15 minutes to this, 15 minutes to that. And, you know took regular breaks and it was never that I just I just like I when I started it'd be like eight to ten hours of just playing absolute random bollocks and just trying to make sense of it see for me like especially now like I just play guitar when I feel like it I don't sit down and go right today I'm going to do this I mean I've never I've never had like a uh, an active schedule that I'd work towards. You know, like most people, when they go to the gym, they go like three, four times a week and then they do this for this long. And they do, I, I've never, which is probably why I've never been any good at exercise either. Cause I just can't, I'll get up one day and be like, <laughs> nah, fuck it. I'll just sit on the sofa and then, and then think about what I'm going to do with my day until the day's over and then go, Oh, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but somehow it's still managed to, get somewhere i suppose that's interesting man because i most people i know who just kind of fucked around for like eight hours didn't end up getting good yeah i don't know i don't know how that i think it's sheer will maybe a little bit of you know nature versus nurture maybe i think if, if you don't have any sort of like subconscious affinity with anything remotely musical and even that you have to train on some kind of level I think it's definitely harder for people to fuck around and make sense of it. I think if you've already got some kind of musical inclination, but you don't really know why or where it comes from, and then you choose to nurture that. I don't know. I think I think maybe that's probably what happened in my case. Guitar seemed relatively straightforward to start with. I didn't I don't remember having any like huge uphill struggles, like playing things like I think the first song I learned was like Don't Cry by Guns and Roses, you know, just the chords and just doing that and then playing the notes and stuff, just working it out from 
from here or whatever and a bit of tab as well. I didn't really understand what it was, but I could kind of make it out. And then I'd, I don't know, after that, it sort of like made sense. It wasn't a stress to hold down the notes or get any clarity out of it or anything like that. And I suppose over over the years, you just sort of like develop that. So yeah, like I, I didn't really have a structured way of like learning stuff. It's almost like you didn't need that because you already instinctively understood guitar in a way that maybe already put you ahead. Is that, is that possible though? Like, I mean, yeah, with, yeah, with other things in life, you know, that, I mean, people have like a, a natural ability towards something. I mean, obviously you look at them and, you know, technically there's a lot wrong with what they're doing, but the intent of what they do seems to sort of like supersede someone else's intent to do the same thing. And both of them could be totally clueless about how the process actually works, but one of them will just have a more natural way of, I don't know, approaching it than the next person, I suppose. To me, that's called talent. Yeah. I I get, (laughs) yeah. yeah, I mean, we've gone around the houses and there is one Perfectly good word for it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we had a long conversation about this on a on a previous podcast um, about talent versus hard work. Right, yeah. But you still worked hard, though. The thing is, I think if you didn't have that natural talent, I don't think you could have sat down and just understood the guitar, like, instinctively like that. Like, learn a song, and then it makes sense. Yeah, but there's a lot I don't understand about the instrument as well. So it's not like everything made sense to me. It was just, I suppose, what I listened to and what I could figure out on the guitar kind of cohabited in the same, you know, brain space to be able to understand, right, okay, so that's what Slash is doing. If I do that, will it sound like that? And I suppose, you know, it starts to, like, make sense from that point of view. But I think with a lot of things, I mean, you'll know this as well, probably from, you know, like mixing or doing other stuff, is you have to enjoy the process and the process isn't always rewarding, but you have to enjoy it nonetheless. And I think if you can get into that mindset, then you can apply vast amounts of time to, you know, develop a skill if you're happy in that space rather than wanting the end result yesterday. Yeah. You know, what's funny too is the end result is such a fleeting part of life. Yeah, <laughs> it is, yeah. When you achieve something, it's so quick. It's like it happens and then the moment's over. Like, if you don't enjoy the process, and I'm not saying this is like a woo-woo hippie thing, like just math. If you don't enjoy the process and the things you're doing, you're not going to enjoy most of your life because most of everything is the process. And then the actual achievement of any goal is just a quick thing where you get like like a quick moment of, yeah, I did that, but then it's over. So if that's the only thing that you're working for, you're going to be miserable. Yeah, exactly. Like, because otherwise, you know, every sexual encounter you ever had would be 30 seconds, you know? (laughs) (laughs) 30 seconds, damn. 30, 60 or 90 seconds, you know? I was actually thinking of a way that I could put that just like eloquently. (laughs) (laughs) And and then he just comes out with it, literally. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there you go. That's talent. Yeah, talent right there. So what were you focusing on? Because I know you just said that it was like eight hours of unstructured practice, but you've also said that you're focusing on the intent behind things. So like, I'm sure that I'm sure that you were doing some sort of practice without really knowing that you were doing some sort of practice that was directed towards some sort of a goal. There's no way you weren't. There's no way that you were just playing random shit and magically got better. Like, no, 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 no. It had to be some target. I think the process was refined down to choice. You know, because I, I do get a lot of messages off guitar players and, and, you know, that are like, 
oh, I've just signed up to your uh, website or, you know, I've got your lesson pack or just, it might just be a general question about, oh, you know, how do I, how do I do this or how do I do that kind of thing? It's been my experience over the years that, I mean, I attended GIT for a very small amount of time. Uh, the classroom thing didn't really work for me, but I thought at the time it would be something that, that would help me, you know, make sense of some of what I was doing. And what I've realized was that my own process was just honing in on what I wanted to do. I wasn't learning all these different styles. I wasn't like divvying up my time between, you know, legato, tapping, sweep picking, picking, all these kind of techniques that make up the sum total of anyone's playing, I suppose. Because technique is only a small part of it. You know, the musicality is the target, I suppose, um, depending on how you look at it. But like I see, you know, when people teach guitar, they teach a syllabus and stuff like that. There's so much stuff that you just don't need to fucking know. And I feel like you're using up valuable brain you know capacity and, and and ultimately it's going to take you longer to learn the very thing that it is you wanted to do i went to git and no one was tapping no one was sweet picking but everyone was like being showed 251 jazz progressions and learning these old songs and then and then like you know the next class would be like harmony and theory and then the next class would be I don't know, sight written. I'm just like, fucking hell, where's the, where's the rock class where I want to learn how to sweet pick like a motherfucker? You know what I mean? Like there was none of that. <laughs> and I realized that it comes down to choice. You know, I think you should just literally focus on the thing you want to do. So if one day you want to get up and you want to play, I don't know, fast alternate pick runs or whatever, and that's your goal, then just do that. Just seek out those types of either lessons or, you know, quite often my, my inspiration would, would be from listening to a song and a guitar player would do a particular thing and I'd be like, what the fuck is that? And then I'd make it my life's mission to figure out what that is, learn just that section and then see if I could apply it somewhere else. And I suppose it's just years and years of doing that. So I never really bothered learning whole songs necessarily. I'd just hear something that say like, I don't know, Steve Vai or Paul Gilbert or Zach Wilde would play and I'd be like, fuck, I need to learn that. And so there would be my my focus. That would be my lesson focus. I wouldn't stop. I wouldn't put the guitar down until I'd figured out that. And I, I think that helps with the process. You know what I was saying earlier about enjoying the process. Like if you're if you're enjoying the process, it means you're enjoying learning the thing that you you ha- absolutely have to know how to do. Like if you're going to sit there and learn, I don't know, classical pieces of music when you're a metalhead. It's kind of counterproductive. I mean, there's probably something that you can get out of that, but I don't believe that learning different styles really makes sense until you've got a real-world sense of how the instrument works and you know yourself anyway and how you would apply a different style into what you've already put your personality into. So say like now, if I listen to like a blues guitar player, there's something I will get from that and I'll be able to bring it into what I already do rather than go out of what I normally do to go into another world, if you know what I mean. It's almost like the want to do it rather than just doing it because you can. Exactly, yeah. Or you can hear the benefit of what that brings to what you've already done on the instrument anyway. But ultimately, the makeup of your playing is all stuff that you chose to learn because you enjoyed hearing that from another guitar player or whatever. It wasn't because someone sat there and went, this is what you need to learn to be a good guitar player. Because I don't think that anyone can necessarily say that. Because it's, so, it's such an individual thing. It's like it is. You, know, you can't have a best or worst guitar player. You can have your opinion on what you think is good and what you think is bad. But it's like most things. 
Exactly. Actually, there's one thing that you, you just said just then, and it's about learning the different Steve Vai licks and Paul Gilbert licks. And you, you have to really, really learn this part. I think that maybe you had a, a unique ability in the fact that you weren't just listening to the notes like most guitar players. I think that you were really like sort of dissecting the entire thing trying to work out how hard they were hitting with the pick, the space between the notes and all the other expressions going along with it. And I think that you understood that at such an early point that that's what kind of gave you the advantage. And I think that's probably a good word for that is talent. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Case in point. Yeah, I suppose trying, trying to mimic stuff. And, you know, I, I suppose later on in life, I, I, I had to develop that because it was sort of my job to do that. Again, because like with something like Lick Library, you can't just go in and play the notes. and sound that's the thing like i think so many people think if you just learn the notes and you play them in sequence that you're gonna sound and replicate what it is that you're trying to do whereas there's so many other factors that go into that like you say i think the notes are the least important thing about music generally yeah 100 percent. it's placement and where they sit in terms of the context and the humanization of them i mean we see this all the time you know when you program a drum beat at 127 velocity yeah it sounds like a beat but it doesn't feel like music. Yeah. And I think that's like a really good example that music is way more than just the notes that are being played. Yeah, 100%. I'll also make the case that you were working on sweet picking and alternate picking and all those things, but as opposed to breaking it up into 15-minute segments or 30-minute segments, it's not like you weren't working on those things. You were working on those things. You were just working on them in a specific context. Like you're always doing it context appropriate, but it's not like you didn't work on those things. No, no, 100%. I mean, but I was working on my timeline as well. And I think that's the other problem we haven't talked about yet is I have an author authoritative problem with being told what I should and shouldn't do. <laughs> it sounds to me like you approach the guitar like by the true definition of the word artist and... So there's a lot of people, though, who are more craftsmen than artists. And I think that that structured approach works a lot better for them. Oh, yeah. Like, say, for instance, if your goal is to be like a professional wedding band musician, one of those dudes who does like two days of lessons a week, then goes and plays a wedding, then goes and like sits in with a jazz trio, then goes and does a studio, you know, that kind of dude who I actually think make up the majority of professional guitarists are those types of guitar players. Like dudes in famous bands are the absolute minority, but I think there's a whole world of professional guitar players who are, they don't view it like, like an artist does, like from a completely individualistic standpoint like you do. I think because they don't have that same kind of point of view, I guess, which is fine. Different People have different talents and different personalities. But I think if you're more of the craftsman type person, then that structured way of learning is probably better. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those guys are like walking jukeboxes as well. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I've never been. That's one, thing, that's one thing I don't have. Like, if someone goes, even with one of my songs, oh, play me uh, such and such, I'll be like, well, I have to go and learn it. Because <laughs> my, my mind is like a, 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 um, a way of being able to remember like loads of licks, phrases, sequences, all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to songs, I actually have to relearn every time I come to like do stuff. Whereas those guys, they probably don't play a song for 10 years and they'll just play it like they played it yesterday. Especially if they're reading it. Well, yeah. Yeah, if they're reading charts and stuff as well, which is another thing I could, you know, never get my head around. So, yeah, I mean, 
it's a different mindset. It's a different approach. I mean, I would argue it's probably more impressive, you know, from a purely technical point of view. I don't know if it's more impressive. It's just different. And what I think is really important, though, like because people listening, there's going to be some people who lean either way. I kind of think it's kind of like a spectrum thing. Like either you're on the super artistic end or the super craftsman end or somewhere in between. But it, the most important thing isn't which one of those you are, but understanding which one of those you are so that you do what's right for you. If you're a hundred percent artist and like, like you said, you have a problem with people telling you what to do because you have such a defined direction and vision of your own and you know exactly what you want to be working on at all times. Like then you got to go with that and make the best of it, but you still have to put the, the work in and the time in. Like it's not, you're not just going to magically get good because you're an artist, but if you don't, a lot of people don't have that kind of vision, but that doesn't mean they don't have talent or that they don't have a future on the instrument, but they need to understand that about themselves and seek a structured way of going about it. Because if you're not the one who sets the course, then kind of get it, get the course from somebody else, which is perfectly okay. But it's good to understand that about yourself. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I totally get that understanding yourself is like half the battle really and, and what you want to do which kind of it makes me a terrible one-on-one teacher <laughs> because whenever <laughs> I've whenever I've like sat down with people and gone through stuff it's like I don't know I just expect people to like do it you know it's, it's just it's just this you know just just do that why can't you just play it yeah exactly but like the beauty of editing and stuff like that and being on cameras you can you can edit all that out and try and deliver stuff stuff in a way that you know people are going to be able to digest and stuff like that but i mean like you say about the whole um you know craftsman versus like artist the one person that springs to mind to me is someone like john petrucci because like i mean let's just put aside the fact that he's obviously incredibly talented or whatever he is very methodical with the way he approaches everything i'm sure he's got some artist in him just because Obviously, he's written music and stuff, but I think that he is like the gold standard for what a craftsman lead guitar player in metal is. Like, he's like the superhero version of that. Everything's structured. He's probably got folders with days of the yeah. week named on it, like hours and <laughs> times. Guaranteed. Yeah. You know, Guaranteed. I've not seen these said folders, but I'm sure they exist. Of course they exist. <laughs> The thing with John that I've noticed uh, over the years of just talking to people, he's always wanting to learn though. Yeah, he is. So that kind of goes against, well, I guess it goes with the craftsman, but also with the artist because it almost like... That's the thing though. Whichever end you're on, you have to always be wanting to improve and push forward. I don't think wanting to learn is specific to either. I think it's the way that you learn and the direction you take, but they both have to be super, super driven. Yeah. Yeah. There's there, no way there, around are, there are people though that do exist that think they've conquered it all. And you you know and you probably well, they're just, wrong. You don't have to like you don't have the heart to tell them that it's like, yeah, you still got a bit of a way to go there, mate. <laughs> well, that's just delusional. Yeah. But it happens. And they're normally the ones that have the worst attitudes as well when it comes to stuff, you know. <laughs> it also depends, you know, about what you were talking about earlier. You knew exactly what you wanted to do and you haven't learned like a blues lick or something like that because it doesn't really work for what you want to do now. Which I applaud because 
I don't like blues either. <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough. If you found what you like, then that's fine. But then just know that there is a, you know, an entire world out there that you could learn, but you just don't give a fuck about that, basically. Oh, no, yeah, 100%. And it also does create a ceiling for yourself as well. Like, I mean, this next solo record that I'm, I'm working on, it's, it's not really any different from the last one, but I still like doing that kind of thing. So I'm just going to keep doing records like that until I don't like it anymore, you know? <laughs> it sounds like the perfect plan. Yeah, but like, you know, you, you know when people try and diversify so much because they're trying to maybe not even please themselves, but they feel like they need to give their fans something different. Please the audience, right? Yeah. But I always feel that you 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 literally are dancing on a knife edge doing that because on the one hand, you change anything that initially was why people got into your stuff in the first place and they're like, oh no, it's not the same band anymore. It's not the same thing. It's not for me. But then on the flip side, you'll gain new fans. But I suppose it depends Maybe how that ratio you know, serves you as a growing artist. Like, is it worth pissing off a few old fans to gain thousands of new ones? Or, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you figure that out for the, for the best thing? Like, I mean, I, I just feel like you write about what you know and you stick to what you're good at. And I feel like you can't go far wrong, but that can limit you somewhat as well, maybe. This is always a really difficult topic for me. Because, you know, when I was growing up, I would get into a band because it sounded like that band. But now people want you to do everything. Like they want to be you, they want you to be their favorite artist and they want to hear something different on every single record. Yeah. Not of your Slayer. Well, yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I said that it's new, new bands, I mean. You know what I'm saying? Like the old bands, like ACDC or that played the same record X amount of times and look how massive they are. Um, but when it comes to new bands now, people want that diversification. They want to be able to say, this is my favorite band because they did this on this album, this on this album, this on this album. And then a couple of pissed off fans at the back because it doesn't sound like the first record. I think you're talking about a very specific type of audience because there's always been people who like change and always been people who like stasis and that's always going to be a part of music. But the thing is, you can't predict. If you start making changes because you're bowing to pressure, you're taking as much of a risk as keeping your sound the same. I think that kind of always ultimately ends in mistake as well, what you just said. You can't let the audience try to set the direction. They like you in the first place because you set your own direction. So you got to always keep that. And that doesn't mean that if you diversify that it's going to always go well. I'm just saying that there's no way to ever predict whether or not it's going to go well or not. You can't possibly know that. It has to be a natural progression, I think. Yeah, because if you put all that work into something and you're just doing it because someone else thinks so, you still don't know if it's going to work. So why would you do that? I, in my opinion, stay true to yourself. And if that means diversifying, cool. Yeah, exactly. If it means staying the same, cool too. But don't give in because what good is that going to do you? Like on the off chance that some people like it, cool. But uh, that's totally on the off chance because what their idea for you evolving is can't possibly be your idea for you evolving because they're not you. That's exactly what I was saying. I don't know which way it goes. Go the way you want. Well, I mean, I, I get contacted by people that send me, they send me videos of their playing or their songs. And this kind of plays into this point because at some point, you know, you want to get feedback from people to know that the road you're traveling down is 
a worthwhile journey or you should just stop doing that because it doesn't sound good. Sometimes I think it's possible to not know where you are, if it's good or bad. But I try not to do that with like my audience. Like I try to know that it's good or bad for myself. Well, hopefully not. I wouldn't put out anything that I know is bad, but you know, I would have made that decision on my own. And then, because I think you're bulletproof at that point, if you put something out and you can confidently 100% get behind it and go, well, it's good for me, you know, and anybody else that slags it off will be like, well, yeah, it just wasn't for them then, you know what I mean? But if they tap into something that was a doubt that you had and you put it out anyway, it's going to be far worse when someone else notices because you've ultimately just been found out. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. That's not a good place to be. So it's hard for me to critique other people's stuff because I don't know where they're coming from when they send me stuff. Like, it's do do you want my validation to just say it's good because you think it's good or do you think it's bad, but I might not think it's bad or... So it's it's definitely something that I tread very carefully on. Sometimes, you know, unfortunately, I don't even respond because I just don't want to, I don't want to put someone in that scenario where like I'm having to make a decision about where they go as as their own artist. Do you know what I mean? It's I actually never thought about it this way. It's quite interesting. Yeah. It's a a difficult one to like get your head around because obviously when you get yourself to a certain level, I suppose people obviously look up to you and then you do have a certain responsibility to to manage someone else's expectations or not. And it's, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that in a lot of scenarios, I must admit. (laughs) I think it's a very, very interesting topic because uh, have you ever wanted somebody else to validate you? Like when you were learning? Yeah, all the time. I mean, it happens more nowadays with general like audio and mixing because I'm way less confident with that than I am with playing guitar. So the songs don't really enter my head anymore. It's more just, oh, does this sound all right? Is this high end just doing someone's head in or whatever? I don't know because I've heard it so much I can't tell. I mean, you know, you guys must know that as well. It's like a never-ending fucking cycle of which you've just got to draw a line under it and go, do you know what? Who cares? It's never is it, finished. Is it going to sell more <laughs> records if it's fucking got slightly more mid-range or whatever? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, it's just nuts, really. But yeah, like, I, I think I think so. I don't know whether if the internet existed when I was younger, I'd have pinged e- like slash an email and gone, what do you think of this? <laughs> or ping slash an email saying you want an instrumental version of Appetite for Destruction. Do you do it now? No, 100%. <laughs> because I, I, I know what his general reaction would be and it'd be like, I don't care. I don't fucking listen to music. I, I'm, I just listen to this. He doesn't even listen to his own records. Why would I expect him to listen to mine? <laughs> Which is another kind of weird argument. It's like actors, they do that, don't they? They're like, oh yeah, they, they act. Maybe it's because they enjoy the process of acting, but they don't enjoy the end result. So they never watch themselves. It's funny for me, like I try and write music that if I was going to listen to it in a year, I'd actually leave it on rather than skip past it. Cause I could, I could be happy with where I was artistically, how it sounds, everything. I'd, I'd be pretty disappointed if I, if, if, if an album came on, well, I mean, it does happen, but I mean, you know, more recently with stuff, where I would listen to it and be like, nah, and just skip forward. <laughs> I don't know whether that's narcissistic or in some small way, probably. But yeah, I think it'd be a shame to ultimately work that hard on something and never hear it again. So narcissism is on a spectrum, kind of like almost everything else that has to do with the the mind and personality and 
there's a level of it where it's an actual disease and it's pathological and yeah. you need help. Yeah. There's also a level of narcissism where it's too low. Uh, so it's possible to not have enough. If you don't have enough, you're not going to push for your ideas or feel confident enough to try something. So yeah, maybe there's a little bit of narcissism in there, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. You need some in order to have the balls to put something out into the world. Well, it's interesting you say that if you don't have enough narcissism, I feel like maybe that's what drives a lot of people to seek validation is so it can bump up their own narcissist level to a point where it's, it's comfortable for them to put it out and know that someone else has gone, yeah, that's cool. A trait that they share is that there's a void that they need filled. Usually it stems from childhood, but basically the big thing with narcissism is there's a, there's a void that needs to be filled and a lot of people want it to be filled through validation from other people because it reinforces their idea of what they want themselves to be. Yeah. And so, yes, if they don't feel that way about their own stuff and that fucks with them, it causes like a hole in their soul or something. Yeah. Then, yes, they will try to seek it out through external methods. It's quite interesting, really, with this, because for me, in my mindset, I see music as a point in time as a way to sort of explain how I was feeling in that moment. And if I think it was good in that moment, then it's good. I might listen to it in 10 years and it might suck. You know, it, it might, that might happen. Right, um, yeah. You can't predict the future. So my philosophy was, if you like it in that moment, release it. Because you obviously thought it was good. You wrote it, you finished it. It still sounds good after you've listened to it to the t for the 2000th time because you're wondering if the mid-range is right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say because it ultimately does put it into the bracket of like, you know, documenting rather than creating, which is interesting because it's a, it's a lot of like, you know, especially like social media, like people procrastinate and that's another thing. It's like because it, always, it, it needs to have a level of perfection or whatever. Like, I mean, I think you should just, Ultimately, if you want to get out there and you don't have the, the professional tools, maybe when you start out, I think you should just put it out anyway, because if you don't, you never will. And you have to kind of build on that. And if you put out an amazing sounding first record, you kind of got nowhere to go anyway. So, you know. Exactly. Like Pearl Jam. <laughs> exactly. So, yes. Yeah, Even to a degree, Guns N' Roses. I mean, that first record, it was fucking amazing. And I'm pretty sure that they didn't ask their, you know, a thousand people on the internet for validation. No. They just kind of put it out there. I'm actually reading Duff McKagan's autobiography right now. I guarantee you that if what he's saying is true, they did not ask anybody for validation. Nope. And I think that's where the, a lot of the charm lies, is they did not give a fuck. Exactly. And I think that that mindset is much... I think the internet plays into the narcissistic behavior of procrastination yeah when it comes to releasing music like the amount of talented guitar players i see that just don't release anything almost no. because of the perfection level that they're trying to attain to which is actually physically impossible as a human well also those guys they're not hugely prolific either what do you mean i mean you look at guthrie govan for example he's done one album yeah you know just as a solo i know you know he's done like the aristocrats thing as well which i understand is just three dudes jamming in a room and someone recorded it but like that's not the sort of artist level of, you know, putting stuff out there like the whole time. It's funny, you know, because I, I know that there's some guitar players that, you, I mean, I'm not going to mention them, but there, there are a lot where you watch them and you go, fuck, you know, where's the album? I mean, a lot of, a lot of guitar players, they spend their whole time improvising. They don't write any, anything. They just, they just can play incredibly well. 
I don't think there's any rule that says how often you need to put stuff out. So in the case of Guthrie Govan, you're talking about one of the greatest guitar players in the history of guitar. And uh, he definitely kind of just does it his own way. He doesn't feel like putting out a record. It's not like he's not doing stuff with guitar. No, but my point is that, you know, having kind of like hung out with him a bunch and stuff like that, I know that the perfection level for the songs has to be... I mean, some of those songs that ended up on Erotic Cakes, they were already 10, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I think it has to be absolutely the right thing. Otherwise, he won't do it. And I don't know whether that's counterproductive or not. I mean, I don't think it is because, obviously, like you say, he's he's known and everybody knows how great he is and stuff like that. But He plays with Hans Zimmer. Yeah, but, like, when you talk about, like, putting music out and stuff like that, I can guarantee that he's probably thinking... The songs just aren't good enough, so what's the point? You know, I might as well just go and do these other things. I would not suggest that approach for anybody that, like, signs up for URM or Riff Hard or anything like that. I would definitely not suggest that approach because Guthrie Govan can get away with it because Guthrie Govan is Guthrie Govan, and, like, (laughs) he's a freak. And so he can do things like that, and somehow it all works out in the end because he is who he is. But anybody lesser... It will be counterproductive for sure. To not put to do stuff that. out, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have to be like a super special case to break the rules like that. I know that it's there. Like I said earlier, there isn't like a rule that says how often you have to do it. So, but it's an unspoken rule that you have to put shit out to get your name out there. So if you're going to go against that, then you better have some firepower. You better be Guthrie Govan. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, it's not like that Guthrie didn't do anything, though. Like, I mean, uh, the first time I heard of him... Well, yes, he's a prolific guitar player, not a prolific releaser of albums. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah, he's a really good guitar player, but when it comes to actually writing music, that's where I think that the perfectionism takes over. Yeah. And that's why nothing has been released by him, apart from, obviously, the improvised solos on... um, May Boy from Porcupine Tree, Stephen Wilson. That guitar solo he did, the, the video of, is absolutely, absolutely mind-blowingly incredible. But yeah, I just, uh, being a perfectionist when you're doing it for yourself, I think is very, very counterproductive. And I think that you should just see music as a point in time and get it the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, I think his his approach, because I know, like, you know, when he's gone down to, like, JTC and stuff like that, he'll have a rough idea of what he's going to do, but it's never written, written. So like, you know, my stuff, I play it the same every time. I don't change, I don't deviate from it, I don't do nothing because I I, I feel like I can bring out the best in my playing when I'm actually, it's written and I, I perform it as such. Whereas someone like him can like turn up, play a thing and it sounds like it's been written, but he's just done it off the cuff, you know. It's really interesting because the way that he plays is the and the way that he writes are like almost the opposite ends of the same spectrum. <laughs> it's quite interesting because like most people that have that level of not wanting to release music would also plan to within an inch of its life what he's going to be doing for these videos. So it's actually quite interesting that he's both ends of that spectrum at the same time. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, it's kind of nuts really when you think about it. But yeah, I mean, that, that is, I suppose that's kind of where maybe true greatness lies. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> If you're going to make a case for greatness, he definitely falls into the definition, whatever it is. But I will say that one of the biggest problems I see with URM students is that that we've been talking about, the not getting stuff done because you need it to be perfect. I don't just mean with like mixes they do for like the nail the mix contest. I mean, 
their own bands, their own projects. Like the majority of people are holding themselves back because they, they want it to be perfect. And then they end up never releasing anything or releasing like one thing every like few years. And it, before they have a career, before they're even good. And so they get in the way of their own progress. Whereas if they just released it and then made another one and released it and then made another one and released it and just kept releasing, yeah, maybe the first few wouldn't be where you want, but every single time they did it, they'd get closer and closer and closer. Also on a business level, like for instance, it's a dumb idea to do that too. Like if you're starting a company and you wait until it's, a perfect thing. You could put in a couple years or three years, like trying to make it perfect and then release it and no one gives a shit. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Or someone's just done it just before you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult with the whole mixing thing because it's like everything else, I suppose. It's just, it's so subjective to like whoever listens to it. And it's, and it's also got the added benefit or problem of someone else's environment in which they're listening to something as well, you know? And you also have to think the style of production changes usually within every decade. Yeah. Maybe sometimes even faster. So you could spend two years mixing your album and then the way that you've mixed it, people might not even enjoy that sound anymore. Yeah. So you've locked it well and truly in the decade it was made. Exactly. Which means you should just fucking release it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a philosophy that no one should mix their own records after, (laughs) after doing it. Four times. I kind of agree with that. I think that that's the only way to get shit done is pass it on to someone else. It's funny because I got to a stage where I was fairly all right at it. And as soon as I try and mix someone else, like I've had a couple of people come to me and go, oh, um, I heard this thing that you did or whatever. Can you help me with this? And I'll do it. And they'll be like, I fucking hate it. It sounds awful. And it's like, well, you asked me. And like, I can only do stuff specific to how I do it for myself. So I can't actually mix other people's stuff, which is interesting. I can only do my own thing because I know what I want it to sound like. And I'm happy that it ends up where it, where it ends up. You know what I mean? Like a true artist. Yeah. So it's, it's in, like, but if I try and do something for someone else, I just, I can't, I can't do it. I don't know how, I don't know how people can sit and deal with mixed note tennis. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> It's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, unless you're, you know, one of the top guys. I mean, I always wonder, like, does Andy Sneap bother with mixed notes? Probably not. I, I reckon, like, knowing what he's like, he probably just delivers the record and go, well, there you go. That's that's it. Dude, I doubt it. I doubt it just because I have talked to so many of these people in depth. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's some people who are so good that they rarely get mixed notes. Yeah. So I bet you that Andy probably rarely gets them. And that's probably why he doesn't do them very much. But I, he's he's a pro. Like if if someone had issues, I'm sure that he. I've never heard anybody say he's hard to work with. No, no, he's not. I, if he was to blow off mixed notes, then I would have heard by now that he's hard to work with. I think you know once you get like his sense of humor as well and how dry he is and stuff. I think you know <laughs> once you once you understand that that's that's what it is, then that's fine. Also, Andy's in a very, I want to say it's its lucky, but it's not lucky because the guy's fucking great. But he's in a position where he can just choose what bands he mixes. Fortunate. Not fortunate. lucky, fortunate. Yeah, I guess fortunate's the right word. But then again, that's, but he worked hard. He just mixes stuff for a laugh now. He just does it like. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, because obviously he's in Priest and stuff like that. I think the Kill Switch thing just kind of happened by accident. I think he just. He only mixes stuff he wants to do. That's literally what he does now. Yeah, I know. But the, but the latest thing he did, I think he wasn't even, he wasn't even on the books to do it. But like he just turned in a, a, a test mix 
And then and they went, yeah, go on then. <laughs> go on and, then. And it's just like, yeah, fucking hell. You know, imagine imagine that, just like sitting down, doing a fucking, you know, half-assed mix and, and getting the gig, you know, over someone that's really tried hard. He worked on it on the... He's worked on them before, though. So obviously they knew that they were going to like it. I don't think it was even the plan to outsource that mix. I think... Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm, I've heard, like, through the grapevine, uh, Adam maybe was just like, again, you know, the, the sort of thing that we all have, like, it's in front of you and you've got so much invested in a certain project you probably can't tell if it's good or not like you just you could do it and whatever you do you just don't know if it's so i think at that point that's when they outsourced that last record and was just like okay maybe we should just get someone else to do this because i can't see the wood for the trees sort of thing <laughs> so and it happens i mean even like mixing your own stuff like for me it happens i'm doing it at the moment i'm, I'm literally forcing myself to take a break from it now because i just don't know if i don't i can't make a decision on it should send it to Sneep. Yeah, but then it would come back totally <laughs> different than what I want. It would still sound good, but it would just wouldn't be the in, it wouldn't be as intended. You know what I mean? Have you ever considered hiring somebody? Yeah, I did. I worked with uh, Scott Atkins once on a record. He did my self-titled one. Things at the time, though, it cost me a lot of money, and it took me ages to pay it off. And I was just like, "Fucking hell!" And and then, I mean, as we discussed before, I, last time we spoke was on the URM podcast, and I got into like production stuff myself just because it was a way of focusing myself out of this sort of mental health blip that I had going on. And I suppose from that, I just decided, well, you know, I actually like the challenge of seeing if I can do it and get it close to like some of the stuff that I like. I mean, you know, one of my favourite producers is Kevin Cherko. And it's like, well, there's no way that I'd probably be able to fund that. I'd maybe get a song, but maybe not a whole album. So I suppose it's just a challenge for me to try and get anywhere near close to something like that, which, you know, even now is proving fucking really difficult because I just... Some of the processes, there must be some sort of voodoo going on. I mean, you know, if you happen to be into that kind of production, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe at some point in, in my life, I'll get to actually see him work or do something. But maybe, I, I mean, he is in Vegas and uh, Five Finger is in Vegas. Who knows? Maybe. Uh... Yeah, you never know. Also, uh, maybe it's worthwhile just sending and asking for a test mix, even if it's just 10 seconds. I thought about it, you know. I, I kind of thought, you know, maybe maybe I should. Because maybe it'll just give you the clarity that you need to say, oh, I need to offload this right now. Or it will give you the clarity to know whether or not it's your decision to finish it. Well, I'm going to have to make a decision pretty quick because I've got something going out on the 24th of July, so I ain't got along. In that case, then, I think you should email... Him right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. Speaking of the last episode that we did, we did that in 2015. Yeah. Uh, you seem like you're in a much better place. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been a process, I'll be honest with you, but it's, you know, like anything, I suppose, you have to just get your head down and focus on things that make you happy, I suppose. And if you do it long enough, you know, the dark path just sort of like lays that much further behind you. You know what I mean? Oh, I definitely hear you. I always think that like, you know, if you get like dark thoughts or anything like that, you know, it's definitely worth throwing yourself into something that can take your focus away from that. Anything other than that seems like considering a more, you know, permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know what I mean? And when did it start to like really be in the rear view mirror? I think when I started like getting out and traveling again, after that 2015, I was, uh, I just met my now wife and that was starting to, things were starting to look up from that point of view. And then I guess we moved out. I moved out of my place and moved into another place, started focusing on, you know, another solo record again and, and just getting out there again, you know, cause when I first started in this business, I was like, just saying yes to everything. Like 
Um, so I traveled a lot. I ended up doing a lot of stuff and I'd lost a bit of that momentum. You know what I mean? I wasn't, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to play anyone's stuff. I didn't want to, I didn't want to participate in a, in a lot of things. And I suppose just ultimately getting out and just traveling and doing stuff again. And uh, it's hard to really sort of like say, but things started to move. I started working with like STL and that was pretty cool. Um, got, you know, working on some stuff with them. And then I started doing some stuff for boss and yeah, that's when I last saw you actually. Yeah. So that, that was kind of like that. And then through the now the mix thing, actually, cause it was a Papa Roach thing. I got in touch with Kane Cherka and we, you know, we became fairly friendly and I met him at a NAM at the McDSP booth. And then we sort of like hit it off and stayed in touch. And then I ended up doing a, a solo on a project that he's working with violent idols. So yeah, it's funny like how I just sort of like started again and cultivated my circle to be towards that kind of thing. Obviously, you know, with Kane and Kevin and stuff and then going out and, and doing tour with Angel and scale the summit and then getting to know Charlie and all, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's funny how like little choices that you make put you in that sort of six degrees of separation category where you start to maybe meet or, you know, get involved with people that ultimately are, are doing what you want to be doing. Yep. We'll help you along the way as well. As much as you can do to put yourself in those scenarios, I think it's it's the best way forward, like to get to where you actually want to get yourself. And I think people should understand too that it takes years. It does, yeah. And I will, really. I mean, it's like, you know, people go, Oh, you know, you're really lucky to sort of like do this and that and the other. And it's like I don't really attribute anything that really anybody does to luck. I think you either do or you don't. That's it. I think this the we've spoken about this as well. Right place, right time, generally, is the only sort of luck. Yeah, but the right place, right time comes with cultivation of what we were just talking about before, is putting yourself in those scenarios. Because the thing is, if these people don't know you exist, then how are you ever going to get that gig in the first place? You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah, they don't know you exist or care. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. which goes back to my point earlier with like Zoltan, he wouldn't have even thought I was a Death Punch fan unless he'd heard it from someone. Do you know what I mean? Like he just exactly. wouldn't even cross his radar, which is, I think it's it's almost done me a little disservice as well in a lot of ways, because maybe I haven't been contacted for gigs that I may well have been considered for, because maybe, you know, my visual MO on, on the internet probably doesn't fit with <laughs> what they're doing, especially like, you know, Butcher Babies. I mean, even even those guys would have thought, well, I'd never thought you'd consider doing anything like this. And it's like, well, why not? You know. I always forget, you joined Butcher Babies, right? Yeah, for, for a short amount of time. But I wouldn't have thought that either. But this is what happened. I mean, during the midst of, of doing a video and, and shoot with, with those guys, I kind of got plucked out of that to go and fill in for Death Punch in Europe. So that kind of, but they were super cool about it. I mean, they were like, look, I mean, this is a kind of opportunity of a lifetime, which when you look at it, it really was, you know. So it, was, it wasn't something that I would in a million years have a dream of turning down. And they were totally cool with it. They were like, look, you know, we wish you all the best and just go and, go and smash it. And that was it. But they're, they're great guys as well. You know, they're really down to earth and just humble, you know. I don't see how anybody could hold that against you. No, no. If they did hold it against you, they'd be pricks. I did feel bad and I still do in, in a way, but obviously that's just me as a personality. I don't really like, you know, if I can avoid upsetting people, I will. But yeah, of course, you know, not to the detriment of maybe a, a possible career move. You know what I mean? But especially in such short term as well. Like, yeah, you know, it was only a few months, wasn't it? To a year? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So it was, it was probably from about October last year to now. So it was a relatively short amount of time that all of that just kicked off and happened. Man, I wouldn't have thought that you 
were into that either. So like, I'm not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do think that it is a thing. Like I can see why it wouldn't cross Zoltan's radar. I wouldn't have ever expected you to play with butcher babies. And I wasn't expecting five finger. No, but you know, it's, it's funny because obviously like other people's perception of, of you is something that you're not really privy to that much unless you get told. Yeah. So it was an interesting revelation for me to find out that, you know, people do have that thought towards me and maybe what I'm doing. Maybe it's because I just, maybe I look established in what I'm doing and I'm not looking for anything else. But ultimately the instrumental thing only really happened for me was to keep my hand in, in like the industry. Because it was like, well, I'm tried bands, some have gone, some have gone. Well, all of them are gone. In fact, you know, it's really hard. Like, and, and the instrumental thing was the only thing that I really had full control over. So I was like, well, look, if I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to keep doing this until something else comes along. But ultimately, I've always wanted to be in an established band and tour the world and do that, you know, properly. I just never really pushed it from an instrumental point of view, because I guess although I enjoy the process of writing instrumental music and I, I enjoy doing it because it's a good release for me, I don't know if I would necessarily see myself as a as a Steve Vai or Joe Satriani career instrumental guitar player type, if you know what I mean. Like if, yeah, I, mm-hmm. if I found a band, that would be more the goal, I think, for me, even, even at this stage. Makes sense. I think a lot of those Shredder guys are more about just doing their own guitar thing. Yeah, definitely. But then, you know, look at Jeff Loomis, I suppose, you know, he hasn't yeah. kind of looked Not back after, after yeah. joining Arch Enemy. And I'm guessing he's probably had the same mentality as me, you know, just find a solid band and a solid gig and, and enjoy that, you know, and, and do the instrumental thing. Because I mean, it is a niche market and unless you can, you know, rise above it. So like, you know, new guys like, you know, Jason Richardson or Animals as Leaders, you know. Just, Even Jason got into a big band. Well, exactly. Yeah. But that's the thing. But he he kind of came on the scene very intensely as an instrumental guitar player as well and gained popularity incredibly quickly. You know what I mean? So he's kind of had the best of both worlds. And, you know, Tosin Abasi obviously as well coming along and and Animals as Leaders are smashing it, you know, doing the instrumental thing. And it's kind of had a resurgence, you know, that that style of music, but it's still very niche and it's still very a low percent of people that can make that work on a financial career level, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've just done it through teaching and product stuff, basically. I never really earned a huge amount of money from my own music necessarily as a sole basis of income. Yeah, I think that that's like one of the things that we've spoken about as well on the podcast already is just you can even as a small artist or a small band still create a living off making music. It's just about which direction you sort of go into, like in using the music as a way to expand to a bunch of other different things, basically, which yeah. is definitely something that you've done. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Okay. So let's take some questions from the listeners. So first one is from Ian Luth. Andy James is one of the nicest guys I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. My question is what do you listen to or not listen to when you hit writer's block? <laughs> writer's block okay well first of all thanks for saying that that's cool yeah I, I, I don't know you know i i get to a certain point within a song and then i'll just bounce that out and then i'll probably go for a walk and just listen to it over and over and over and over again and then i kind of start to get a sense for what i want to hear in the next bit you know does it go to a clean bit does it go to a heavier bit faster bit slower bit 
A lot of my music is determined by other stuff that I listen to in terms of arrangement. So I'll, I don't know, say like listen to something like Nickelback or something like that, or, you know, find an arrangement that seems to have like a universal appeal to it and then insert something that's less appealing, like instrumental guitar. And then you, <laughs> and then you hope that the arrangement side of it kind of keeps listeners interested in your stuff for a for longer than maybe just a backing track with Shred over it for four minutes, which I try and stay away from doing that if, if at all possible. <laughs> That's kind of one of the things. Sometimes I just don't play the guitar for like a week, two weeks. And then when I pick up the guitar, I'll just make sure that I record whatever comes out in that moment because quite often, I don't, well, I don't know with you guys, but if you, if you don't play guitar for ages and then you pick it up, you might not go straight to your go-to thing that you would normally play if you're yep. literally playing yeah, eight hours a day every day. So sometimes there's a little bit of a moment where you'll be like, oh, never done that before, but because you've got your recorder going, it's documented forever for you to go back and do something with. So yeah, a couple, a couple of things. That's what I would do. Sick. All right, I've got a question here from Greg Sills. Um, oh yeah. You know Greg? Yeah, yeah, I, I recognise the name. Yeah, he's uh, from yeah. Scotland, I think. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, absolute legend. Glad to know him personally. So that just made it not weird. So that's cool. <laughs> Question, would you ever consider doing another album as heavy as The Ruin of Man? Uh, Sacred Mother Tongue. Well, I mean, maybe not with that band because we, we uh, decided to call that a day back in 2014. Coincidentally, actually, it was two months before Bruce Dickinson decided that he wanted to take us on a world tour with Maiden. Which I found what? out about a lot later on. I was gutted about, yeah, because he used to play us on his show all the time. Um, Bruce Dickinson, he had a show, and he, he was he used to play our stuff all the time. And uh, Luke, a friend of mine, you know Luke, I don't know, maybe last name De Stefano. Oh yeah, I know Luke. Yeah, yeah, he's sound guy. He did a hacktivist, and yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, but he's like my best mate. He was working with the Raven Age, and they were out on on their world tour with Iron Maiden. And he sat down with Bruce one day, and he just gave him a bit of a backstory. And that he started this band, Sacred Mother Tongue. And he was like, "Sorry, said that again. You were in Sacred Mother Tongue." He was like, "Yeah, yeah." Uh, so they got chatting about that, and then you know, Bruce sort of like mentioned that he was thinking about tapping us up for like a world tour with Maiden. And when Luke told me, I was just like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" It's one of those oh, things, that, you know, you just don't know. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know what's happening. What conversations? Because we, you know, we had management and stuff. We were never in the room for conversations. Which, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this, or you know, you run your own thing. But when you're not in the room having those conversations, you don't know the right hand, don't know what the left hand's doing, and that can have a counterproductive filter down effect to the rest of the band, which is ultimately why we decided to call it a day because we just thought we were fucking flogging a dead horse and just doing nothing. So basically your manager was not telling you anything what was going on? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to point fingers at this point because we all, we're all still mates and we will still get along. And It just didn't work out. It just didn't work out. You know, that's, that's that. You know, we read the situation that wasn't maybe the way it was and... And that's it, you know. But yeah, that's life. I mean, I, I I do heavy music, I suppose, when I when I feel like it. I mean, this latest album I'm I'm doing is definitely heavier and more riff based than say the last one I did, which is more kind of synth wavy metal crossover production style. So yeah, it's definitely more stripped back and something that is heavier. It's not it's not vocals, obviously, but. Yeah, I'm not adverse to doing anything like that. I just, I don't know whether career-wise it's going to take me in a in a direction that is going to be worthwhile. If I do it, it'll only be maybe a hobby thing, if you know what I mean. Fair enough. Well, Andy, 
Thank you very much for taking the time to hang out with us. It's been awesome catching up with you again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to speak to you again, Andy. We'll have to catch up more. We don't talk to each other enough. Definitely, mate. Yeah, let's not take five years. No. (laughs) Hopefully there'll be more stuff to talk about in less time than that. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. All right, nice one. Cheers, guys. Man, it was cool to talk to him because anyone listening to this can go back and listen to his URM podcast episode. Hold on, let me say which one is episode 85. He had just come out of a very tough time period in his life. And we talked about it. Like, this isn't like some secret or anything. But he basically kind of like broke down and like stopped his career and had to fix himself. When we talked to him, it was right at the beginning of him fixing himself. And he had a great attitude, but it was at the right at the beginning of like, the end of a very dark time period and so it's it's really cool years later to see that he didn't fall back into the darkness and is doing great things i think it's um taking that from andy is uh you know i think that's one thing that we should listen to um with andy because you know i think that every musician to a degree goes through some incredibly dark times. I think it's the nature of this business. And I think Mm -hmm. that Andy's a perfect example showing that there is a way out of it. Even if you're at the darkest point that you could imagine, there's always the only way when you're completely down is up. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought one thing he said about the five finger death punch gig was interesting that the thing that was challenging was the endurance side of it. Because I'm sure that people think that he's an incredible guitar player. So that stuff must be easy. Like five finger is far less technical than what he's known for. So, you know, I think people would just assume that he would just breeze right through that gig and I'm sure he did great with it, but still the rhythm part challenged his endurance. Yeah. Which is going to happen if you don't practice it all the time. It's one of those things. And even though like a lot of people, including myself sometimes, like forsake practicing the rhythm, it's just so important to make sure you keep on top of it. Because, you know, you could play an hour and a half set or be asked to play an hour and a half set and only be given two days notice. And you're not ready to completely own it at that point. So practicing endurance, building up strength and doing all those things that will just help you in that kind of situation. And we do that on Riffard. Yeah. Let me just say too, that rhythm playing, especially your right hand is something that goes away quickly. If you stop doing it, like you will get weaker at it quickly. And it's also something that you don't just get back in a day. Like maybe if you're really, really good, maybe you'll get it back in a few days, but sometimes (laughs) two days notice might not be enough. It definitely wouldn't be enough, especially for an hour and a half set where you're having to run around the stage, miss the people you're on stage with and then dodge the pyro as well. It's like, it's not only just that. It's like you, you want to build up the endurance for your, not only your wrist, but obviously your whole body as well with breathing and all of that sort of stuff plays a huge part in that. Well, yeah. So that the playing part, you don't have to think about it. You can just own that part and worry about the rest. Exactly. The down-picking gym really does address this in Riff Hard. Yeah, it basically strengthens up your right-picking hand, or if you're left-handed, your left-picking hand, to the point where you'll be able to conquer pretty much anything. As long as you have a strict regime or a a schedule that you follow um, and follow it for 
20 minutes a day, you're going to be set for that kind of situation. Um, we even have breathing exercises so that you know when and how to breathe in relation to what you're playing. I mean, if you don't breathe right, your tension situation is going to be kind of wacky. It is. I mean, if you imagine that you're going for a run and your breathing isn't completely correct, that run is much more difficult than it needs to be. And the same goes when you're playing really complex rhythmic parts. If you're not breathing correctly, then the muscles aren't getting the oxygen that they need. That can cause you to tense up, create some lactic acid, and there you go. You've fucked up the show. Now... 20 minutes a day. I think guitar players will think about that and be like, yeah, right. 20 minutes isn't enough because as guitar players, we, we hear people talking about, oh, I used to practice 12 hours a day and all that. But I've personally seen people like pros who decided to check out Riff Hard who don't have more than 20 minutes a day do it for like two weeks and they were way better at rhythms Way better. It doesn't require 12 hours a day to get good at a specific thing. What it just requires is consistency and focusing on the right things. That's the most important thing. When he, I mean, even Andy said it, he was playing for eight to 10 hours a day, but a lot of that was fucking around. But if you're focused on something for a short amount of time, then you're just going to basically get more out of it. Yeah. And we give them a schedule too. Yep, we give them the schedule, which I can't pronounce. <laughs> schedule. Schedule, yeah. It's a weekly updated document and you get different sort of exercises to focus on, different riffs to try out, just to sort of expand the palette, basically. Yeah, so it's not just do 20 minutes a day of whatever you see on the site. Like, if you want to be guided, we will guide you. Yeah. And it's focusing on the different expressions as well, not just straight down picks. It's like we could be trying something like, for example, playing in a different time signature or focusing on maybe adding some hammer-ons and pull-offs into that equation, string skipping and all those other little things basically to make the right hand better, at not only just down picking. It's also all the expressions involved with actually making songs music. Yeah. So crucial. Well, anyways, if you guys want to actually get serious about your rhythm playing, which is about 99% of what you play when you play music, riffhard.com. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. Next week.